If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Nurse Wellness Podcast, hosted by Wendy Garvin Mayo, focuses on the power of stress management and how it's foundational to being your best, doing your best, and giving your best. There's a wonderful episode that you should check out called Letting Go, where Wendy Garvin Mayo shares six strategies to release control and manage stress effectively. Check out Nurse Wellness Podcast on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to Highway to Health. I'm Jeremy Quinby. How are you? Hope you got some time off around the holiday last week. I got to spend some time at my family cabin, watched a bunch of movies because it was raining for part of the time, even did a little fishing. My daughter caught her first fish by herself, which was pretty exciting for both of us. Always good to have that downtime with my family, and I even got to sleep in. And being at the lake and spending some quality time in nature isn't too bad either. Speaking of which, did I mention that I'm going to Iceland with my family next week? We've got seven days, and we're going to try to see as much of the island as we possibly can. I'm so excited. If you've been there and you have any suggestions on places we have to see, I'd love to get any leads you have. Send me any suggestions to my email address, jeremy at highwaytohealthpodcast.com. If you're new to the show, thanks for checking it out. Highway to Health is an exploration of how we can improve our experience, our states of wellness, in our own bodies, with each other, in our communities, and with our natural world. Having worked in integrative healthcare for more than 20 years, I'm acutely aware of how all aspects of our world come to have an effect on our health. And it is my hope that through the conversations here on the podcast, you might be able to navigate it all just a little bit better and even develop a blueprint for yourself, for your own health and well-being. We're always looking for great guests for the show, so feel free to email me if you have someone that you think I should have a conversation with. My guest for today's show, Dr. Richard Fershine, reached out to me about having a conversation uh, here on the podcast, and I'm so glad that he did because he's one of the most knowledgeable practitioners in the fields of integrative health and functional medicine. He'll be up in just a moment, but first I want to say thank you to all the new supporters of the podcast. Your dollars are really helping us broaden community support around this project and all the projects we touch through our conversations here on Highway to Health. If you haven't donated yet, don't feel bad about it. You can change that right now by hitting pause and going over to patreon.com forward slash highway to health. If you like the amazing resource you're getting here through the conversations, become a contributor and I promise to keep bringing you the content ad free. Also, in case you want to share the podcast with others, you can find us just about anywhere you find podcasts, including Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and Buzzsprout. And if you hear an episode that you think somebody else needs to listen to, just hit the icon with the box and arrow pointing up and drop it to them in a text or email. Also, if you'd, if you'd consider rating us and giving us a review at the bottom of your podcast feed, it will increase the visibility of this project and turn on some new listeners. I really appreciate you doing this. I'm so excited to share this conversation you're about to hear with Dr. Fershine. We tried making this happen in person for a couple of months, but ended up having to do it uh, over Skype. He's been a medical contributor on CNN and Fox, uh, also was part of a show on Nat, Nat Geo. And doing my research, one of the things I that quickly became apparent about him was how broad his scope of knowledge was. And while he's been in practice for more than three decades, his passion for his work, which I'm sure you'll recognize in the conversation you're about to hear, is as strong as ever. 
He shares with me how his own health challenges and those of family members and friends stoked an early interest in more a more naturopathic approach to healthcare. And it's pretty clear that a growing part of his work is to educate, which is why he's having a conversation with me here on the podcast. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Richard Fershine. I've been able to do a little bit of research since you have some videos and things up. Have, right. ha, have you been doing some podcasts too? No, I mean, I, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I, I've done a lot of media, mm-hmm. um, you know, in television, um, and I had a radio show for a number of years, but I um, haven't done podcasts. And uh, I think it's fantastic. You know, it's an amazing format. And, uh, but for whatever reason, it's been off my radar. Yeah, it's on it now. <laughs> that's right. So that's yeah, it's all good. So how how long have you had the clinic there in New York? So I've been practicing here since um, this particular office since 1991, and uh, prior to that, I'd worked with um, a lot of luminaries in the uh, what was called alternative medicine field, including Bob Atkins. Um, and I really, you know, started by, you know, you know, in those days, it wasn't a lot of information. There wasn't the organizations that exist now didn't exist. So you did a lot of the research yourself and uh, you worked with people, you know, mentoring and, and carving the path, as you will. Yeah. Did you, did you work for a, a clinic starting out? You're, you're, a, you're a, an osteopath, correct? Yeah, so my training is osteopathic medicine. I obviously did quite a bit of, you know, when we talk about allopathic and osteopathic, but I did my training, you know, at the Cleveland Clinic, um, uh, my um, residency in family medicine was in Chicago. Okay. And um, then I trained as um, in medical acupuncture at UCLA. Ah, where, where did you grow up? So I grew up in New York. Um, my, my office right now is about a block away from where I was born. So <laughs> that right? Tell, yeah, at Mount Sinai Hospital. I often tell people I feel like, you know, a turtle that has come back to spawn um, where I've just, you know, I've, I've left, traveled the world um, and have come back, you know, to exactly the place I was born. <laughs> I, I have a bit of the same story because I was I was in New York for 13 years, grew up in Minneapolis and um, then my my wife ended up getting a job offer in Minneapolis. She's she's from New York, so we, <laughs> right. we switched we switched places for a while. But right. I've, I've been coming back there. I'm I'm still in New York about fifty days a year, and oh, wow. most, mostly okay. in, mostly in Brooklyn. But I'm, for the last six years, so yeah, fantastic. I yeah. mean, Brooklyn's come a long way. It's exciting. Oh, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. So I, it, for me, it's it's really um, it's it's a very dynamic environment. I mean, New York in terms of why I was attracted to it again early on, um, in terms of you know where integrative medicine was growing. Um, I really felt that this was for a lot of great doctors um, making their mark here, and uh, and there are a lot of great hospitals. I mean, traditional medicine. Is has a great foundation as well. I'm just a lot, yeah. a lot of people that I refer to and doctors that I work with uh, who are open to 
integrative health and also, you know, in their own fields are, you know, quite accomplished. What, what drew you towards osteopathic work? Well, I really um, was definitely not attracted to traditional medicine. I would put it that way. Yeah. And I was looking for, you know, an, an approach that really fit with my philosophy. Um, I grew, when I grew up, I, uh, I experienced kind of the ill effects of traditional medicine fairly early on. Um, I was quite sick when I was a kid uh, with asthma and oh, allergies. Yeah. And I was really at the forefront of a lot of problems. I, you know, I, I, I also tell my patients I've experienced a lot of the problems, so I really understand it. Um, I don't really wish that doctors would understand all of the problems of their patients, but right. it, is, it does give you an enormous perspective. And I do find that a lot of people in the alternative medicine field, um, you know, it was the shock of a particular health issue in their own life or... Uh, in in someone that they loved yeah. uh, or love, and they made a decision that, that they were going to look for options. And of course, once you make that decision, and your health recovers, or a family member's health recovers, uh, you, you know, you suddenly you know you become a convert, and it doesn't take long uh, for that to happen. So, yeah, I, 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 I have the same story. So, mm-hmm. I, I had back problems at far too young of an age. And by the time I was in my mid twenties, I was I was sort of suffering, you know, pretty pretty chronic, you know, what people call their back going out, and um, muscle, muscle spasms, which can be horribly painful, and you know, kind of suffered through that for quite a few years in my twenties, and, and you know, at that point, just, we just weren't. This is in the nineties, you know, the the traditional medicine didn't really know quite what to do with me. That I was, they didn't even refer me to, to PT. I ended up with a chiropractor, which was moderately helpful, but it just kept having the same problems. And I, you know, it was one of those things where I finally ended up deciding to go back to school to solve my own problems, which kind of sounds like your situation too. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, literally wanted to become a doctor to find alternatives to what doctors were doing. And, uh, when I was a, when I was a teenager, I lost two very, you know, just 12, 13, but I lost my two best friends to cancer. Oh, is that um, right? and lymphoma, one after the other, and very, you know, very sad stories. I mean, at the time, uh, very, very traumatic for me. My mother uh, developed breast cancer. My neighbors, both on either side of my house, had uh, breast cancer, and both had died. And I remember my mother at the time, um, and, you know, I had suffered a great deal, and, and she knew my friends, and, you know, it was a very big tragedy in the community. But... Um, she, when she found out she had breast cancer, she said, look, you know, she told my father, if I uh, have metastatic breast cancer, I do not want chemotherapy. I said, that's, you know, they, they give you six months because once you start the medication, that's, that's how long it takes for the, those drugs to kill you. Yeah. So she, she rejected um, those treatments. And there was an interesting story. I mean, we could digress a little bit, but... It was an interesting story because um, she, uh, you know, went through the, you know, a, um, a procedure. She had a mastectomy at the time, which is a standard of care, yeah. and um, and then she had radiation. Uh, but as as she had told my father, she was going to refuse chemo. So instead of telling my mother that she actually did have metastatic breast cancer, which she did. Um, the surgeon and my father actually kind of conspired. You know, we can't imagine that happening today. But right. 
the uh, they conspired and they didn't tell my mother that they had found lymph nodes that were positive. Uh, so the five-year survival rate at that time was probably less than 5%. Mm. And uh, after five years, uh, everyone was looking at each other and going, she's doing okay. Uh, we don't understand it, but let's keep it going. And so they decided to keep this secret to themselves. Wow. They, they persisted with it for another 20 years. Um, and sometimes, and we're talking about 25 years later, my uh, my father calls me, and I'm already practicing physician. And I'm deep into, you know, alternative medicine. I already written my first book, reversing asthma. I was into my second book on the nutraceutical revolution, and he pulls me aside, and you know, he's like, "Your your mom is really bad shape," you know. And I talk to her, and I call a friend of mine. We get an MRI. He calls me. He's like, "Rich," he says, "I don't know what to tell you." He says, "Your mother is riddled with cancer." Talk to my father. I was like, "We have to get her in right away." He says, we need to talk, and he tells me this story that I didn't know, that they had you know, withheld this information from my mother. She still didn't know, went in for a procedure to, to take out a, um, a cancerous disc in her neck and lived for another 13 years. So that diagnosis, because she, she just never believed. When we talked to her about cancer, she said, you know, it's like blood pressure. Uh, you got to manage it. And, and I remember growing up, we, you know, after that diagnosis, you know, we had sprouts in the house. It, we, we got very hippie very quickly, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. You know, there was kombucha tea uh, being brewed in the basement. Uh, we were having bone broth. I mean, I, I think back on the revolution that she personally started in, in you know, in that house and what happened afterwards. Um, I think she would have loved, she was quite an entrepreneur in, in her own sort of sensibilities, but, you know, this was just sort of how we lived. Um, so it was a very inspiring story for me because, you know, she outlived the surgeon who, who performed the surgery. <laughs> wow. She, out, she outlived the second surgeon who performed the next surgery and the oncologist um, who took care of her. So, uh, and, and just really in, in many ways because we, you know, changed our diet and we became, you know, I wouldn't recommend that that's the only thing people do now. There's a lot of great treatments in terms of tamoxifen and yes, yeah. other therapies that I, that I encourage people to, you know, to, uh, to use and in conjunction and in the true sense of, you know, integrative health. But, um, but I think, you know, that story and her story is very, was very inspiring and is very inspiring to me. It, it speaks a lot to the, to mind, body medicine, just in general. And, and, and what, you know, what, what our belief system, you know, this is part of why I started this podcast in the first place. This conversation has come up so many times is, is that, um, I, I was doing some work with a doctor who was, who was working on, um, some, some health tech projects. And one of the, one of the things that we got into when we were, we were getting into intake was talking about people's belief systems around how they think they're going to get better. And, and then we're and just realizing, you know, how much of an impact that actually had on, on people's wellness. Yeah, I mean, I, re, I I just remember early on, you know, whether it was cancer or when the you know AIDS epidemic started, you know, when people have serious problems um, and you tell them a diagnosis without any hope, in a sense, you know, yeah, you just yeah. I, I call them, you know, their their prognosis. They're not diagnosis. Yeah. They're not diagnosing. Uh, when you when you tell people you've got six months to live, I mean, there's you you just start that whole internal process. Yeah. 
um, where people start to count down time and, uh, you know, their bodies weaken and, and they lose that, that balance. So whatever way people um, are able to internalize that hope or that belief system um, through meditation, prayer, uh, being consistent in terms of, you know, visualizing, uh, all of those things are really have had a very impactful, you know, effect on my patients. And, and it speaks a lot to the language that, that we use and the, and the terminology that we, that we sort of draw up, you know, in, in terms of uh, prognosis and, and, you know, sim- symptomatology of, of, of the naming of these kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, and they're they're based on negative attributes of whatever the problem is. Yeah. You know, there's no hope involved generally. Yeah. Um, but I, um, you know, once once something like that happens, I become you know obsessed. And um, you know, after learning that uh, this, you know, this is how my 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 mother's mindset over that twenty year period, uh, and my own experience, because you know. Uh, before I really dove really deep into alternative medicines, I already was a practicing physician. You know, I was director of medical education in, at uh, one of the major hospitals in Manhattan. I uh, was teaching residency training. And so I was pretty deeply involved in, um, you know, kind of going through, you know, the holistic approach, what I would call a holistic view of health. Yeah where I would look at all the symptoms and systems that people have and really come up with a diagnosis. But I wasn't um, holistic and integrative in the true sense. And, you know, my own personal experience um, really meshed uh, in, in sort of starting me off on where, what I call this real transitional period of my health career. But, you know, these events like my mother's uh, illness and, and also you know, her experience um, uh, in terms of healing herself in many ways drove me to, to understand that connection between mind and body. And I remember, um, you know, I started a program for kids um, in the South Bronx and I was working on a, with the actor Paul Servino. Uh, yeah. And uh, I became medical director of his asthma foundation. And um, one of the programs we put together was called the Breath of Life program, and we put together a program for kids that was based on meditation, visual imagery. These kids were, you know, twenty five percent of the school was asthmatic. Um, they really, you know, they were on multiple medications, and you know, we put them through this holistic program of recentering themselves and refocusing. And uh, they went from you know fifty percent attendance rates to ninety five percent. They had kids who were going home helping their parents, teaching them how to meditate and, mm. and visualize. And this program was so successful, I, I just kept going until um, I was um, approached by Psychology Today, and I um, became a contributing editor of Psychology Day and started writing a column for them for uh, the next seven or eight years on uh, you know these natural sort of integrative approaches that were really based on mind body health so you know once once you sort of and once you realize how powerful these treatments are uh it's quite life-changing for yourself too i mean you know i really incorporate these into my day-to-day routine as well yeah and and it's i mean in a way you 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 it sounds like through your mother you were starting to experiment and and you know have have experiences with you know 
st- starting with, I'm sure, foods and, you know, different kinds of things and understanding those effects on you and then going to medical school and and then, you know, starting to probably deal with all your, you know, concerns around your own asthma. Oh, and, and right. Issues. And so the interesting thing for me was, um, you know, obviously what, you know, what, what's... Uh, What's good for one person is obviously not necessarily good for another. So in my case, I had a number of undiagnosed food allergies and uh, to a wide spectrum of foods, you know, nuts, sesame, soy, you know, it's a a whole bunch of things that hadn't been properly diagnosed. And growing up, you know, we would go out for Chinese food like every Sunday and every Monday (laughs) I was sick. I know where this is going. You know, so I, and they, they were telling me, they said, you know, he doesn't like school. Uh, I was like, I like school, but I feel sick every Monday. You know, they're like, well, it's all in his head, you know. So I ended up um, having a very serious asthma attack while I was, you know, practicing physician. And I was working in a clinic. Um, and I went, I remember I went home, I woke up in the morning, my lungs were locked. And I went to the intense. I ended up in the ER. I ended up in the intensive care unit, and you know, I remember that moment where you know I was lying there, and they pumped me up with all these drugs, and I was really kind of out of it, and uh, a lot of adrenaline, you know, a lot of cortisone, and uh, and they were sitting there, and they were saying, well, you know, if he if his if his O2 sat drops any further, I think it was probably about sixty five percent at that point. Mm-hmm. Even if it drops any further, we're going to have to intubate him. And I had read this book on uh, breathing exercises, and it was, in fact, it was by Paul Servino, who was the the actor that I eventually became the medical director oh, of his wow. foundation. And I read this book, and that night I just focused on doing these breathing exercises, like I, even though I couldn't do anything else, you know, I just focused on these exercises, and I made it through. You know, finally the the medications kicked in, and and uh, you know, and for the next year, when I say I made it through. For the next year, I went through this recovery process. But when I started adding in all these modules of what later became the program that I based reversing asthma off of, where I looked at my diet, I looked at my nutrition, I looked at my environment, I looked at my allergies, you know, I checked to see if I was taking the right supplements. I went through everything step by step. Each piece of that puzzle started to pull the entire process and program together. And that was really the moment when, you know, for me, I would say that was the, the, the aha moment because I would not have made it through. I would have been on, I mean, you know, again, at that point, doctors were, you know, and I know the people I was talking to, some of them I did, but in general, people are like, you know, you're probably going to be on this the rest of your life. I'm like, I can't be on cortisone the rest of my life. You know, I, I mean, this is unacceptable. I was on seven different medications, you know, drugs to, you know, Zantac to deal with the, you know, ulcers and gastritis from the cortisone and, uh, you know, medications to, you know, calm me down from the, from the adrenaline. And, you know, it was, it was a whole mess. Uh, so finally got off all the medicines, you know, rest is history kind of story. But um, it really had a, that, that was probably the next phase of that transition in terms of, how I, you know, was viewing traditional medicine, what what it really had to offer, and the fact was that everything that worked for me had nothing to do with drugs. Yeah. Uh, and to this day, it's the same story. You know, I'm I have not I'm off those medications. Um, I haven't had to look back, but it's a, it's a pretty you know amazing process when I when I think about 
uh, how many people go through this even today and are still not offered options, you know, and told like, yes, you, there's a program for this and this is how you do it. And, and for the, for the Chinese food, did you figure out it was the MSG? Yeah. So it turned <laughs> out, of course, well, it was the MSG and the soy. So, that, you know, ah. so day it was soy sauce and, you know, you'd have, um, uh, there would be bean sprouts, you know, we'd have like a sort of chicken and bean sprout and yeah. soy sauce and the MSG. And of course, you know, later on if, uh, through my research, I realized that all of these foods, these, you know, hydrolyzed vegetable proteins and MSG, you know, everything is derived from soy as well. So, you know, I, I really learned that that this, you know, the, the kind of the, the the big lies and the little lies were sort of adding up in the food industry as they skirted all of these rules about, you know, putting what's on the label. But you could, you know, you don't have you could put you have to tell what's on the label, but you could just say it's vegetable protein, right? And so you wouldn't have to write soy, or it would say MSG, but you don't have to write where it's derived from. Um, so I, you know, I made I made a lot of obviously corrections to my diet subsequent to all of learning all of this, uh, but it wasn't apparent to me. And, it, and it's, a, again, a pretty big part of my practice now is, you know, you know I've, been, I've been saying for a number of years and being one of the leading, uh, kind of on the leading edge of the problem, you know, I had it, yeah. uh, saying that I'm seeing more and more kids with food allergies. And this was in the 90s. I was like, well, you know, it's one out of you know, 20, maybe one out of 30. Now, you know, we're talking about one out of five, one out of seven kids with, with food allergies. And then when you add in sensitivities and you add in, and adults too, you know, not, not just kids, but I mean, you add in sensitivities and gluten allergies and, you know, um, milk intolerance and, you know, and, and all the sulfites and hormones and pesticides, you know, at some point, you know, the technicalities of what, what are an allergy even get blurred. But they all play, you know, a, a pretty profound role in my my patients' health. What, do you have any thoughts on it, having worked with it for this long, as to, as to what this is stemming from? Whether it's like more food source based things. I mean, obviously, there's you know all, all, well, the, all think, the things you just named. But I mean, I I, I do. I have, I have a pretty clear sense of where you know I think this is all coming from. Um, but, but I think the the primary source for most people is related to uh, refined and processed foods. And it's that processing of foods while women are, that they're consuming while they're pregnant Mm. and uh, during the earliest periods of time in a child's life. And the reason I believe it's happening, I mean, and first, you know, my anecdotal experience was kind of interesting. I, I had dealt with a particular family um, this was sort of a, you know, we could call them one of the, um, you know, an international royal family. Yeah. Um, but they had an interesting story because they, their kids were, for a variety of reasons, some of it may be security, were raised in two different places. One of them was raised in an environment where it's definitely much more natural and organic to their own life and environment. And the other identical twin um, was, grew up in London and had you know, kind of the best of everything sort of thing, but, you know, formulas, things like that, and was exposed to just a lot of processed food. So guess what happens? The kid who's in the environment where they grew up and it was sort of native to their own, uh, you know, ancestry and genetics 
had no problems. The kid who was um, allergic ended up, you know, who was growing up in London, was the one who was exposed to all these processed foods. And so I think one of the biggest issues that we have right now is is this issue around processed foods. You know, you and I think it was an issue for me as well. The second big part of it um, is the overuse of antibiotics and the destruction of the gut biome. Yeah. So, you know, if you kind of take them in tandem, um, you know, and I'm not saying there are a host of other factors and, you know, there's a whole controversy around vaccines and so forth. And I really don't believe the, the in a sense, the viruses that have been attenuated and or are modified are necessarily the issue. But there's a lot of cofactors in, in vaccines, which are adjuvants that help to stimulate or help the, 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 the vaccine to work better. Um, and so there's, you know, soy byproducts and, you know, lactose and a lot of uh, from formaldehyde. And I think these actually are kind of hyper stimulate the immune system in neg- negative ways. But I think the bigger issue really when it comes down to it is the role of early use of antibiotics, uh, the destruction of the gut of gut flora that are normally protective and um, the absence of. Uh, certain types of bacteria and parasites. You know, we know that kids in, uh, again, in environments that are what we would call less clean, you know, grow up on farms or uh, in around their native soil environments um, who may have parasites, they may have bacteria that are, that are common. Those bacteria and parasites have protective effects and actually uh, guard or teach the immune system in one way or another, either they protect you against it, or they teach the immune system that um, that not to become more tolerant of food. So when you get rid of it, when you take antibiotics, you remove that. When you don't breastfeed, you remove the gut bacteria. And then the second part, of course, is is when you have these molecules which have been modified. Um, you know, they're they're small enough in size that they can pass through the you know the lining of the gut you know the lining of a gut is you know is one cell thick there are tight junctions which actually you know help the body to identify and process foods to you know bring it bring it into the body but 80% of the immune system is lining the gut so if if it isn't properly handled and the body isn't able to identify these foods or they or they pass through too quickly or they haven't been digested or modified by by bacteria in your gut then the immune system goes on red alert. And I think that's the most likely scenario that, you know, I see. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know in my own personal experience when I go through these set of questions with my patients and, you know, did you take antibiotics? Did you breastfeed? You know, were you born by a C-section? Um, you know, do you have a lot of processed foods? And, you know, when I hear a lot of that, I'm like, okay, this is going to be a problem. Yeah. Uh, so... What, what, you, what are your thoughts about, about C-section? Because, I, you know, I treat newborns um, just, just doing craniosacral therapy. And most of, the, most of the babies that get referred to me are, you know, either have... They're having difficulty latching, having, you know, nursing issues... Um, they have some kind of GI issue going on, and you know, I mean, there's a, there's always a time frame, so I, I'm pretty aware of you know where they are age-wise and whether this is within that you know sort of 
three-week to 12-week range, there's going to be gas, but, you know, but then there's the stuff that's just really extreme, you know, and, and, you know, I've just, I'm just, you know, I've, I've been doing that work for, I guess, 14 years now. And just seeing trends of, of babies with, who have been through C-section and my, you know, one of my thoughts is that maybe there's something that gets missed in terms of, you know, peristaltic rhythm or something with their guts, you know, from, from not going through that process of, of I, I, birth. Yeah, I, mean, I completely agree with that. And, um, you know, I think that, you know, when you kind of think through the process of childbirth, I, I, I like to believe nature doesn't miss a beat. You know, it really, at the end of the day, they're either kind of grand compromises that uh, ensure the survival of the species or does the, the best that nature can provide for yeah, that species. Yeah. Or there's a, there's a process that unfolds which is designed to specifically encourage the health and the growth of that, that species' child or, yeah. you know, or, or your offspring. Yeah. So in the case of uh, childbirth, I mean, labor goes on for a long time. And I think that the reason why labor is laborious, why it takes time, a part of it, is that as the baby is passed through the vaginal canal, it really does activate a lot of, uh, of systems that, um, you know, it's, it's sort of like you can see. It's like the baby's going through. It's like, you know, activating the brain, activating the digestive tract, activating the lungs, act, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. activating the urinary system, getting the blood flowing through the extremities. And, of course, the, the final step in that is the passage through the canal is... The, uh, the placement of healthy bacteria within the child's um, oral cavity. Uh, and generally children are born, face, they're, they're, their heads are face down towards the anus. So they pick up some of that additional uh, bacteria or gut biome uh, that the mother possesses. And that's what populates a baby's gut. So, you know, it's all done in a very interesting, you know, rhythmic way that is designed to make sure that is the baby now ready? Is the baby now ready? And so as that process happens, you know, I think that those, they, those are the benefits of, you know, natural childbirth. The opposite, of course, is having a C-section. And the danger, I think, you know, and one of the, you know, and, I, and, I, and I've said before, I think one of the, the great risks that we have is I know we do understand what we're doing to the planet. You know, we are. Uh, we see these oceans of plastic, and we see, you know, the damage and pollution that we cause to the environment. But what we really have not focused on, I think, enough is the destruction of a complementary genetic system, much more complex than our own bodies, um, of bacteria yeah. that have grown with us. I mean, you think about... When people for, you know, let's say, you know, last 200,000 years of human existence, uh, generation after generation not only passes along a genetic code, but passes along a bacterial code through childbirth. And that bacteria may in some cases have existed for 100,000 years, you know, in a particular population and, and adapts to the environment and adapts to the food that those people ate and, and, and helps that helps it and you know uh, symbiotically helps the individual to thrive because it's in the best interest of the bacteria to do so. 
what we've really done with C-sections and with overuse of antibiotics is we've, we've severed a thousands-of-year-old um, process of, that, that has protected the species. And we're really at a point now where you know, we, we're, we're, we're going to lose that resource and then we're sort of on our own to figure it out, you know. And it's not a it's not a simple process, you know. There are over a thousand different bacteria in each person's gut. So when you have a C-section, what happens? Your the baby is removed from the gut, but it doesn't have the opportunity to be passed through the vaginal canal, have its organs activated, and um, and also have that gut biome that the mother possesses uh, passed to it as it had been for the last, you know, 100,000 years, potentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it's a, it's a very serious part of why we're seeing, again, this increase in allergies, increase in autoimmune problems, and uh, increase in other problems, including, you know, autism and, and so forth, I think is related mm-hmm. in some part to the destruction of, you know, of this, you know, this gut flora through C-sections and uh, and antibiotic use. Do, do you think there's anything that can be done sort of early on in a in a child's life then or in a baby's life to to help that situation out? Um, I, I think we're you know we're on the cusp of understanding it. Um, obviously, breast breastfeeding is one important yeah. Yeah. Uh, source of it. Um, and you know, again, nature kind of figures out the whole package, right? So. You know, the breast milk contains all kinds of immune stimulants and all kinds of things that help um, help gut flora to propagate and also protect the baby while its immune system is growing. And at the same time, um, you know, the uh, the bacteria that grow around the nipple are lactobacillus, which are designed to help break down the the, the milk that the mother is producing. Mm-hmm. So at the same time, you think of yogurt, you know, I mean, at the same time the baby is getting the, uh, getting the milk, they're also getting the bacteria. So, yes, you know, uh, breastfeeding is another important step in that process. And then introducing, uh, certainly in the case of um, uh, C-sections, I mean, there's some controversy now because... You know, some moms were doing, you know, doing vaginal swabs and then giving that, you know, to the baby. And um, on on the surface, that sounds like a great idea, but it does go back to the original concept, I, you know, or the idea that I was putting forth, which we've destroyed that gut flora, and in many cases the vaginal flora. So I'm not even so secure that, you know, in the sense that if women have had a lot of uh, taken a lot of antibiotics, then and their their vaginal flora is imbalanced. That they're necessarily going to pass along the right bacteria. Uh, yeah. so, so we have a complicated, you know, this is this is complicated to untangle. But I think, uh, you know, I think we're capable of, you know, starting the process of figuring out what did we just do, and you know what what did we just unleash? And I do think it's we've we've done something that. You know, we can't put the genie back in the bottle in this one. You know, we're we're going to have to figure it out. But uh, you know, if, if we're to figure it out on Earth or on any other planet that we so desire to go to, uh, we're definitely going to have to travel with a lot of these, you know, these these bacteria that have been serving us for for a very long time.
So, so because you're, I mean, it seems like once you, once you kind of get into treating, you know, food sensitivities, allergies, and gut related things, it's kind of, it seems almost impossible not to be treating all sorts of autoimmune issues, I'm guessing. Yeah. And I think that there's a, um, you know, there's a lot of overlap in terms of it. And I think we get kind of bogged down in the idea of what is an autoimmune problem or what is an allergy. When do we convert from one to the other? Um, You know, I, I do think that a lot of what we treat in medicine you know, people really forget that medicine is really designed to treat disease. Um, you know, it, it was not, it is sort of a footnote. Prevention is a footnote in the concept. But the main the main idea of, you know, of doctoring is, you know, to take care of a patient and above all, do no harm. Mm-hmm. And that, that assumes that there is a problem that you could harm someone even further with. Um, the idea of prevention is sort of not part of that. So, and, and wouldn't you wouldn't you say that? I mean, I feel like integrative health now. I mean, I sort of ended up in an integrative health field without without it having a name, <laughs> as I'm right. sure as I'm sure you did. And right. you know, I, I think if if we're to kind of like you know get into what's what's becoming more of a definition, you know, sort of beyond the the do no harm part, is is also that the that the body heals itself. Right. And I, I think that we just didn't have enough data to kind of explain how the body heals itself. Right. I think now we are actually at that that precipice again where we can really understand how the body starts to work and what we can do. But we're we're again, you know, we're, we know enough, but maybe we're, you know, it's that point where it gets a little dangerous, where people are sort of getting ahead of themselves and making proclamations about, well, if it's this, it must be this. If we do this, it's going to work for this. And I think that people need to understand that, you know, the human body is at least as complicated as a car um, and that people are driving that car every day. You know, I tell my patients, I'm like, you don't come in this. Just tell me what to do. I say, you know, it, it boggles my mind a little bit because yeah. people know that to drive a car, they need a license. You know, they have to check both ways. It's very complicated. But when they're in their own body, they're like, you know, whatever I put in, it's fine. You know, it's uh cheeseburger and fries and I'll have a Coke and, you know, it'll, it seems to be working. Any old fuel. <laughs> and if they've had their car, they'll, you know, they'll pay the extra five cents to, you know, get premium gas, you know. Right. So it's, it is, it is, human nature is fascinating, you know, when you, when you break it down to health and, and, and what they, people can do to prevent it. Yeah. But to your point, I think we are entering a, a period where we do have an obligation um, as health practitioners to instruct and teach, um, you know, our clients, our patients uh, about prevention and to let them know that, that, they, that they do have a choice mm-hmm. and that there are options available which, um, you know, can prevent a lot of health problems. Yeah. And because and, in, in my field, you know, I've, I've been working kind of in and around, you know, for the most part, just doing, you know, because I'm... I'm doing a kind of osteopathic work, but craniosacral work really works well on autonomic nervous system function. And, you know, I've sort of combined it with other forms of body work and also movement work. And, you know, we, we each kind of have our own tool set. And I feel like just within that tool set, there are things that are almost have, you know, shocked me as, as to how well people have done with any, you know, 
list of things. And I've worked with people with a lot of food sensitivity issues, even with just that, and they've and they've done better without you know having changed diets. Are, are there any things in in your practice that that kind of surprise you in terms of how how people recover and heal? Well, I, I love the the your your conversation about cranial sacral. I mean, I, I'm you know. You know, the, again, this, this, the entire field of integrative health is, is so fascinating because when you see things happen in front of your eyes, right. you you know, I think the first time you're sort of, I'm as skeptical as anybody. You Me know, too. I sit there and go, I'm like, okay, that didn't happen. You know, <laughs> yeah. that, that couldn't have happened. And then the second time it's like, oh, okay, it happened again. But, you know, that doesn't mean that's not, you know, that's not a research study. Right. I can't base anything off of that. Um, and then the third, fourth time you do it, you're like, okay, there's something here and I need to learn more about it. And I think um, it has really driven me. I mean, as I've gotten closer and closer to really understanding health and what it that represents, I've, I've learned that uh, I do feel that as physicians, we really, uh, and, and as healers, we really have this um, obligation, but also an, an internalization of what we understand and what we can process over time becomes more and more valuable. So when you're starting, you know a lot about things that are in a book. And where I am now, I know all the things in the book, but I know a lot about how it works. And I could not have imagined you know, that I would have seen so many things at work in so many areas. And going back to um, craniosacral, so, you know, I, as an osteopathic physician, uh, I've been trained, and I've been trained in cranial work. I've been trained in osteopathic manipulation. Um, you know, I wish I could do all of these modalities for all my patients all the time. Right. I had, you know, a patient recently, <clears throat> anecdotal. But she had, um, she was uh, a, a, a psychotherapist herself. She had recently gone through a very traumatic period in her life. And she came in because she was going to see her psychiatrist was being put on a lot of medications for hallucinations. Mm. And nothing was working. And she was literally telling me, like, yesterday, here's what happened, and here's who I saw, and this is what was happening, and having a rational conversation about it, as only a psychotherapist would. Right. You know, like, anyone else would be terrified out of their mind. You know, she was like, you know, there was Paul walking across the street, and it was like, he didn't exist, you know, and that kind of thing. And yeah, I said, yeah. um, I said, well, let me, you know, let's just kind of see if this is a major, obviously, stress reaction. It wasn't putting more emphasis or less emphasis onto what I was about to do. But I said, we're going to do some cranial work. So we did a couple of sessions, and then she came back, and I was like, how are you doing? She's like, the hallucinations are gone. Now, I'm sitting there, and, I, and, I t and again, I'm sitting here and telling you, major medications, antipsychotics, mm -hmm. on this particular woman who, you know, she's degreed, she's, she knows the story, but I said, let's go through this. Now, placebo, um, nocebo, you know, whatever you want to call it, right. or actual change in how her body or the blockage in terms of how her body was processing neurotransmitters or information, um, you know, I, in a sense, now one, do I 
you know, do I care that it was from something that we don't really understand? Yes, I do. I'm profoundly interested in what this response was. Yeah. Uh, were her doctors interested in what they what happened to her? No, you know, um, they, there was that sort of again that that dichotomy. But I, I I think that those are these are things that sort of surprise me in my practice, where you know you still see things that you just you didn't think would happen, and and suddenly. It, it's in front of you, and you have to. You're really stuck with the idea of what just happened here. Yeah, and and I think that the, the change that needs to happen really with, if we if we want to be fully integrative, is that we, we need some of these other physicians to also be curious and 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 want to have a conversation with us or you know gather more information about what went on in this situation, whether it was with their psychiatrist or you know physician just just to, just to just to track it because now this is part of this person's story especially if it's their if it's their gp just 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 you know have a sense that this is this was kind of an anomaly in this person's life and we, we should keep an eye on this uh, when i work with medical students uh, over the years i've said there are three qualities that i really look for and you know i want i want the doctor i'm working with to be smart you know, I definitely want somebody who is trained, smart, um, who looks and sees, you know, looks at the data and does the research. Um, I said I want I want a doctor to be dedicated. You know, I want yeah. them really focused on their work, and I want them to understand that this it is a calling. You know, you don't you don't go into healing people um, as a scheme. You know, to get rich, you you have chosen a path where. You're going to be working with another human and engaged with that human being. And I said the third thing that you need to have is curiosity. You should be asking how and why this is working. What did I do for every patient? And I think that I do see a lot of tremendous dedication. I mean, so I see some of the finest, you know, I work with some of the finest people and I see some of the smartest people I've ever met. The curiosity, I, sometimes I look at them like, where is it? Yeah. You know, why is that not a thing? Why is it not something that everybody sort of sits back and says, why am I not, uh, wh- why did this happen? You know, and and is this something that I could extrapolate, you know, for my patients? Um, I remember, you know, when I was in training, um, you know, again, many years ago, uh, there was a lot, you know, uh, one of my, uh, one of my, mentors in that sense um, was in Long Island and he said to me, you know, I don't know what it is. He said, I'm not sure what's going on, but I'm treating my patients with um, doxycycline for arthritis and they're getting better. And I'm like, you know, it's odd. I didn't really think much more about it, but and then, of course, the story around Lyme disease broke. And, you know, he was curious. You know, he said, I don't know what it is, but I'm, I'm treating my patients with these undiagnosed autoimmune problems with a drug to treat something, but I don't know why it's working. And, of course, that's the main treatment for Lyme disease. And you wonder, like, how many people suffered Lyme for how long because people weren't curious about understanding somebody must have been on doxycycline or tetracycline and had, you know, and been bitten by a tick. He wasn't the first person, but he was curious. 
and uh, and I and those kinds of stories really stick with me. Yeah, and and that's you know I think being curious leads these idiopathic you know cases to us a lot of times I think too right, they, right. They, they pick up on it because they've been to you know how many people before they've probably ended up in our offices yeah and I think that's a general generally true I mean I you know I think that uh, all of those have really kind of refocused my you know thinking and that curiosity has really refocused my thinking in terms of you know what do we need to do What's what are you know all these topics we're talking about around you know the nutrition and the gut biome and you know and toxins um, you know what is it that really has to be has to come together and I and I think where I am now as it always is in terms of a singularity you know I think of you know those fantastic algorithms that you see on a on a blackboard is, you know, Albert Einstein was figuring out e equals MC squared, right? You know, it's the simplest equation to understand the universe. And, you know, I've come to this sense that we really have to, we really do have to start thinking about more and more about the N of one, literally the person in front of us. I think relying too much on all the research and all the data. Every day I get up, I read, you know, I'm going to say if I have an hour, I'll read an hour. If I have two hours, I, I do two hours. I mean, I, there's so much data. Yeah. There's so many research papers that are out there, and they change from day to day. You know, like the, 10 years ago, don't eat eggs. You know, uh, then five years ago, eat eggs. Now, yeah. don't eat eggs again. You know, it just that another study was like, yep, yeah, it, does, it is correlated. And then you have to think about it. Like, why, why is that happening? Is it just the eggs? Is it the pesticides? Is it the hormones? Is it the way they're raised? Is it the corn? Is it the soy? Um, but beyond that, it's really thinking about, you know, each individual and what that process is. And that's where I've sort of developed this concept around me medicine. Yeah, and explain, was, that, explain that to me. So, um, you know, several years back, it was a story that um, I had a writer who came in to do uh, a piece on in uh, town and country. And... Um, she had a whole series of problems that she was dealing with. And I said, look, we're, we're going to go through this step. We're going to think about every single thing that can go wrong. And I said, it's, you know, I want you to, every day I want you to think about what's going on. I want you to say, this is about me, 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 you know? And I said, stop thinking about everyone else. You know, my doctor said this doesn't work. My doctor said this doesn't work. I said, let's forget about what works for everybody else. So you're here because it didn't work. Let's think about what's right for you. And so the title of that article was Me, Me, Me Medicine. Um, and really, me medicine is the idea that we are each unique individuals, that there are a multiple, a multitude of factors which we're all uh, uh, either exposed to, either genetically, um, either because of our environment, or something that's happened to us over time. So what I do is I really, when I think about a patient, I think about what are the problems that are sort of, I do think things, you know, people attract certain things too. And I'm not saying that it's, you know, just energetic. Yeah. I think that, you know, if they eat tuna, they're, you know, they're going to be exposed to mercury and mercury is going to attract to the worst sense of what they are. Or if they eat processed foods or they, you know, they'll, if they eat meat that isn't um, organic or uh, pasture, pasture fed, or it hasn't, um, you know, or, or they eat something that 
that uh, contains lots of sugar and so forth. So I go through this process, and I call it, you know, this little acronym called MAGNETS. Um, but when I go through with a patient, I'm like, what's attracted to you? And I think, what are the metabolic issues like sugar? What are the autoimmune and allergic issues? Uh, what are the genetic problems people have? What are the nutritional deficiencies that you might um, that you might have? What are the environmental exposures? What are the toxins? And what are the sensitivities in terms of inflammation that you have? And so, how, how much testing do you do you do for that kind of stuff? It varies. It varies. Like I, you know, I mean, like take two patients today. I mean, I had one person who came in and and they they had pain, and I did acupuncture and manipulation, and I did some prolotherapy, and you know, I I think they're generally fine. So I I, I understand there's an underlying problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll start to look for. For them, I'll kind of hone in on that specific issue around inflammation, why this happened, what's in their diet, you know, what's happen- what, what, what's going on. But I would say to kind of get through all of those steps that I mentioned, that would be a significant amount of attention that I give somebody, right? I'm looking at their, that G is not only genetics, but it's the gut biome. So I might do a swab for their genetics. I might do a stool test for their gut biome. Mm-hmm. Um, I might do allergy tests on their skin. You know, looking for IgE-related reactions. Um, I'm, I'm going to look for toxins like mercury in their blood. Um, I'm going to check for metabolic issues. You know, using uh, you know testing for things like hemoglobin A1C. So I'm going to do a fairly extensive uh, group of tests and and really determine once and for all what's going on with each person. Now, I do believe that not, you know, not everyone's going to need a stool test and not everyone's going to necessarily need their genetic tests. Yeah. Uh, and I do encourage people not to go out and get these sort of, you know, 23ME tests um, because they don't own their data. And I'm very, um, I'm very much of an advocate for, you know, HIPAA compliance and owning your information. Yeah, and I yeah. People are just giving it away, and it's fascinating to me. But it's the most private bit of information you have about yourself and your family, by the way. So, um, so looking at those tests and thinking about each one, yes, it's a very individualized process. Uh, Thinking about what someone's genetic history is, you have to talk to someone. You know, a lot of it is is sitting down and listening. And I often find that the most valuable information I get from a patient, if I sit down for an hour with a patient. The last three minutes are sometimes the most incredible, you know, where somebody mm-hmm. finally like, nope, everything's fine. Yep, don't really have anything going on. Like, oh, you know, I do remember. And then, you know, you're about to, okay, here we go. Here we go. This is going to be the story. <laughs> yeah, totally. This is exactly what the problem is. And, um, you know, so I think part of it really is, is, is functioning and going off of your intuition. And that really requires talking to a patient. Yeah. And, and talking to a lot of people over a long period of time. And that's, you know, again, as, as you were saying earlier, you know, it's, it's anecdotal, but, you know, when you, when you see it in, in patterns over such a long period of time, it, it, it helps direct, you know, your, your, at least your, your line of thinking. And, you know, especially if you're dealing with someone who's really at a bottom, you're, you're just trying to get them to feel even 10% better at that point. It, it's it, it is every percentage point, and, and, and you know, again, I'll I'll go through and I'll say, look, I'm expecting in the next couple of weeks that you feel ten or twenty percent better yeah. if we're on the right track. I mean, you, it's not going to heal itself in a day, right? 
But, you know, it's encouraging to know your body does recover, does repair, and that it doesn't have to be something, a lifelong problem, as, as long as we've identified what the underlying issues are. And are, because because you're dealing with gut-related things, are you, and because the East Coast is has so much Lyme's related stuff, is, is that something that you're seeing a lot in your in your practice? I, I see a tremendous amount of gut-related issues. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of patients with irritable bowel, inflammatory bowel disease, colitis, Crohn's. And how, how much do you think is related to Lyme's? Is any, any, any idea well, about that? Well, I think, I mean, I, I would say Lyme, I'm going to go with the way the CDC's sort of general impression of, of Lyme, which is to say that we are underdiagnosing it by a factor of 10. Okay. Uh, and I think that Lyme is, um, and, and, and I also don't know if we've really identified all the tick-borne illnesses that people have or yeah. the co-illnesses that are present. Um, I'm not sure about that. I think that there, there you know, this, this whole issue around, you know, whether or not someone has Lyme and they don't have a bullseye and it happens in 60% of the patients but not in others, um, you know, as again, as I mentioned earlier, I have the unfortunate sort of experience of going through a lot of these things myself. So I've had Lyme a couple of times. Okay. And um, I can tell you that, uh, interestingly, the first time I had it, um, uh, so I've had it three times. Uh, so first time I had it, no bullseye. Uh, second time I had it, big bullseye. Hmm. And third time I had it, no bullseye. Um, and so... But the third, by the third time, I knew the symptoms, though. Um, what, were your, like, what were your symptoms? So I uh, experienced really bad, very intense headaches, a kind of a mild sense of weakness and fever, hmm. uh, and, a, and a general malaise, like a, a heaviness. And I would, like, my thoughts weren't clear. Yeah. You know, I would say left, and I meant right. You know, it would be like, wow, did I, you know, it's like, okay, you know, that, that would be my set. Um, but for me, it was just, you know, that sense that kind of the feelings, you know, which we, when someone's developing meningitis, you know, they go stiff neck and, yeah. uh, and that, you know, that sense that, you know, you're being overwhelmed by something out of your control. Um, I sense that in my case in two separate situations. So the first time I went to a, someone I knew who's an infectious disease specialist, um, it was the middle of the summer. Um, I thought my, I thought I had an ice pick going through my head. Mm. We did a test for Lyme, came back negative. And he was like, mm, no, test is negative. I'm like, what else could this be? It's the middle of summer. I've never had anything like this before. I go to places where there are ticks. Yeah. You know, what else is it? And he's like, I don't know what you got, but it's not Lyme. So I was losing it, you know, literally. I mean, I was like, I couldn't practice. And uh, so I... Uh, started first oral antibiotics and then the oral didn't work and I uh, started IV antibiotics and I was cured. I mean, within you know a week of starting it, I was like better. Uh, and then three months later, my antibody test came back positive. And you sit there and you're like, so we're going to wait three or six months. We don't have a good, you know, you have to have a good understanding or a good sense of your patients, where they are. It's the perfect, you know, it's, it's, it's exactly where you don't want a specialist, right? Mm -hmm. You know, somebody who sees someone once and doesn't know the personal history of that person. Um, 
But I really learned through the subsequent bouts that I had that you can, you know, if you if you're vigilant with the treatment, you know, like sticking to a very strict regimen of, of therapy, um, and using additional supplements, by the way, um, you most people that I treat, um, and I would say. I don't have, you know, any patients who haven't, and I see a lot of patients with, with Lyme and chronic mm-hmm. Lyme. Um, I would say I, I'm trying to remember someone who we haven't figured out a way to treat it. Hmm. Um, but I would say that there are people today who have really passed the threshold of, uh, you know, of complete cure. You know, it's a very damaging organism, and... Uh, tick populations are exploding and it's going to of course get worse because I mean, global warming is the perfect environment for ticks to blast. Right. So we are we're in the epi- an epicenter now of this type of problem and it's going to get worse you know and worse. And whatever you see, you know when there's an epidemic um, in general, whatever you see there's four to ten times more cases. I mean right. when you see 50 it, you know it means there are 500. You know, and you have to anticipate that it's just going to keep getting worse until it gets better. So, con- considering your your skill set, what what percentage of people come to your clinic for just ongoing maintenance and and you know stasis, trying to you know stay stay at where they are if they're healthy, if they've been through something, or even even just continue to make small improvement? I would say you know it's still pretty consistent. I'd say eighty percent of my practice is still patients that have problems that need a solution initially, and twenty percent or less um, are really you know engaged in the way I am in terms of prevention. Yeah. So I have a program that I set up this heal program with, which is another acronym that I use for health extension and longevity. Okay. Um, I, I really am a proponent of rethinking the idea about, you know, aging and particularly the words like anti-aging. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's, you know, that's sort of a misdirection, but people do understand it. So if I say to someone, I want to do, I want to extend your health, people are like, what are you talking about? Well, anti-aging. Like, oh, okay. You know, um, but I, but I'm trying to get people away from that concept because, you know, I don't. I want people to think about um, how do I extend my health, and yeah. that's an educational process right now. Right. I, I, I'm still really deeply involved in in trying to help people understand what that literally means. And then I tell them, I said, well, I want you to feel as good, you know, at 50, but I want you to feel as good as you feel at 50 at 90. You know, there's yeah. no biological reason why people can't feel mostly themselves. Yeah. Um, and we just, we kind of fall off a cliff when, you know, we're, we're in the 50s and 60s. And, and the reasons for that are probably laid down in a lot of foundational issues that people don't address. Mm-hmm. But, you know, people really don't, when they die, you know, there are very few reasons people, you know, when they die, there are very few re- 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 things that people die from. You know, they have heart disease or cancer or, you know, neurological problems like Alzheimer's. Yeah. Uh, they have contributing factors like diabetes and respiratory problems. Um, but for the most part, you know, we kind of know what, what people are going to die from. And we know what debilitates them. Uh, so we really want to think about, well, you know, what are you predisposed to? What, what, are your, what, did your fam- what was your family history? What are your genetics? 
what do you have right now that's going to be a problem? You know, if you have gout right now, we've got to deal with that early. If you have diabetes, we've got to deal with that quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have, to, we have to think of a, of a way. So in many ways, I think people come in, as they often have over the years, to physicians for a particular issue. What I try and do is grab them and redirect some of that energy towards, um, you know, healing them and, and getting them into a different frame of mind so that, you know, it's not as glamorous. I mean, I think what, one of the things is, you know, when you, when you see these, you know, ads for these hospitals that do, you know, these credible surgeries and they're, you know, the stuff we're doing now is, I, I know on one end of the, on the spectrum, we are just brilliant and, you know, and creating all this fabulous technology and on the other end of the spectrum, we're com- completely, the policies and the way of practice are completely incoherent. And, and uh, overly reliant on, on something will fix the problem instead of, you know, looking it's, to, it's to glamorous, education. Right, right? Exactly. It's glamorous. I mean, if you have a laser, you know, and you, or you have a, a, you can do something robotically, I mean, it's, 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 it's really, it's very appealing. Right. <laughs> um, but you know when you when you fix something before it happened and someone doesn't know that they were going to get it and i do sit there with people i'm like you're not going to have this problem i'm just telling you you, you would have been coming to see me for x y and z uh-huh. we're fixing it and and you're not going to go down that road and and i can't tell you how many times and i i just love treatments that prevent people from going for surgery you know, know. where I, for me, a lot of the orthopedic kind of work that I've done and, and also just, you know, doing functional movement work for me with people is, is really all about education. It's like I, I can see the future of someone's neck and shoulders, their lower back. The, you know, I work with a lot of younger people who have scoliosis. I, I, I know what that's going to look like later because I've seen those cases too. And, you know, these some of these people might not have any problems if they start doing the the preventative work. I, I call it prehab now because it's kind of like... Yes, yes. You know. Now, prehab is, I mean, what a fabulous concept, right? I mean, I love that. And, uh, you know, it's almost, it's, it's a mystery why someone would go in, have a major procedure... And then go to rehab right. when they haven't done the prehab. They, yeah. you know, but I, I think part of that is the desire to get people in for procedures so quickly yeah. uh, without really thinking about the, the outcome, which is going to be dramatically improved if they go through prehab. Yeah, and, and I've I've worked there's been you know I've, I've worked with people with you know hip issues lower back issues and stenosis that it's pretty clearly like problematic and I don't know what the future of it holds but if if I have them do the work and sometimes it, it I've worked with them for ten years sort of you know on and off and they've and they've stayed you know in, in pretty good shape it's just that it gets to a certain point where lifestyle becomes starts to become an issue and at that point if they end up having to have you know hip replacement or or spinal surgery or something they're recovery rate is is incredible they 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 rarely have a backslide and they recover so fast it's just amazing i mean to that's watch. a really critical point um that you know that that you're the perspective that you're bringing to it where you're actually seeing the differences in doing it and i i really think the standard of care um, at this point, is if you're if you're going to put someone in surgery, they have to go through some sort of prehab yeah. before you even think about going through surgery. I I, I just think it's uh, I can say it's malpractice. I mean, it's a big word, but it's kind of laden with overtones. But I think it's in a it is a uh, I think the standard of care um, 
should be reassessed and that, uh, you know, a new vision of, of what it is to get per- people ready for surgery needs yeah. to, to evolve. Yeah, so it's kind of just misguided more than anything else. I think we we also get very sort of stuck with, you know, there, there are, what I do is a lot of times out of pocket. And so the people aren't willing to put that money in, but, you know, it, it might be a thousand dollars and, you know, considering what the, what the rest of your life looks like, if you, if you do a little bit of that work ahead of time, I mean, if insurance could cover those kinds of things that we're not there yet, but it would be, it would be the, the, the return rate of surgery would be so much less. Uh, no question. I mean, it would be, it's a game changer. And, um, and that's the kind of thing that I look at for, you know, uh, nutritional evaluations, dietary evaluations, you know, all this whole process, even with my patients, whether they have, you know, before they go in for, um, they go in for surgery, or even if they have cancer before they go for chemo, you know, before there's, a, there's always a period of time before these things start. And you've got to grab people and get them as ready as you can. Uh, and in so many ways, I think prehab is sort of maybe the kind of a great way to look at all of the functional approaches to optimizing the outcome of a person when they go through something that is so potentially uh, damaging. I mean, again, you know, we're talking about what people die from. I mean, at the end of the day, one of the biggest things that people die from, too, when they get older are falls. Yeah. Uh, and you're like, well, what happens when they fall? Do they hit their head? No. They, they fall, and they have to go in for a procedure. Um, they're, you know, if they have a hip or something along those lines. Uh-huh. And then they're a complete risk for infections and pulmonary embolism. Yeah. So they die because then they end up first having they, they get they fall then they end up getting a you know a stroke and then of course the the whole process unravels uh so yeah prehabbing is kind of the investment makes sense immediately when you consider the risk that someone is in you know when when something like this you know when something happens to them and there are many ways to take care of a person i mean if they can't move one hip you know there are things you can do oh, to optimize the health of that person before they get themselves into bigger trouble. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I feel like we just we just kind of touched the tip of the iceberg as far as what we could go into here. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it probably, uh, you know, I think six hours, five days a week uh, for a month, maybe. <laughs> Well, we'll 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 start planning a follow up, um, and because I'm 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 still interested, and I and I'd like to come up next time I'm in New York and and meet you and and take a tour of the clinic too. Yeah, I'd love you to uh, to see it. And, you know, there's there's a lot of um, a lot of work I'm doing here, and I'm working with uh, not only clinics in the U.S. but I'm building relationships with clinics in um, in Austria, Switzerland, um, where you know they're sort of different points of view and trying to bring those different perspectives. I mean, it should all be the same, but it's still vastly different and uh, the perspectives are very different. So what I'm doing, what you're doing, and what's happening everywhere, the sharing of, uh, of information and, yeah. and what, what's available is, is probably the most pro- one of the most promising things I'm seeing. Yeah, I agree. Well, thanks so much. And what, what is the, what's the website of, of your clinic? So uh, people want to find out more about uh, what I do, um, they can go to firstshinecenter.com, F-I-R-S-H-E-I-N, 
fershinecenter.com, or they can look up Dr. Fershine. But uh, Fershine Center, pretty simple, and I'll give a good overview of what I do, some articles, um, information, some, some work in press and so forth that give people some background information as well. And, and you've got some articles out there and, and stuff on YouTube too, if, if, if anyone's looking. Yeah. So there's, uh, there's uh, you know, when I was more or less doing a lot of work as correspondent for uh, CNN and Fox, uh, one phase I did a lot of, you know, television work. Um, but, you know, that's sort of a good, again, it's a good primer. It, it has more to do with the interest of the day than what we're talking about today, which is yeah. really my passion. So uh, stay tuned. I think the best is yet to come. All right. Thanks so much, Dr. Frischein. All right. Thanks for uh, having me. I really enjoyed it. Great Absolutely. Dr. Frischein, folks. I really do feel like we just scratched the surface in this one. I'm 21 years into my career, but I feel like I have a lot to learn still. And as I've told colleagues numerous times over the years, if I ever lose this curiosity, it's time to move on to my next career. Luckily, this podcast has been a fertile ground for learning, not just for listeners, but for myself as well. I've been contacted by a lot of people to be on the podcast over the last three years, and many people, I can just tell from a brief conversation or from their LinkedIn profile, are still learning their way into their fields. My criteria as the host for the show is that my guests must know something beyond my field of understanding, have experience I don't, and ideally are pushing into some new frontier of thinking about health. Having worked between orthopedics, sports medicine, pain management, mental health, and pediatrics, I've become more generalized than the average practitioner in my field, but it has also introduced me to some of the most brilliant minds in a number of different fields. And today I feel like I got to meet another one. What I love most about this conversation is the simple acknowledgement that as individuals, we are dynamic and that each person needs unique consideration. His idea of me medicine is easy to remember and it's important if we are going to understand how each person heals and stays well. Getting as much information as possible and continuing to develop a partnership with our patients or clients is the key to wellness and living highly functional each day for as long as we can. Thanks to Dr. Fershine for taking the time to share his experience with us. I have a feeling this is just the beginning of many ongoing conversations with him. If you liked this topic and conversation and believe a podcast can make a difference, would you consider contributing to the growth of this project? It takes just one minute and you can become a supporter for as little as $1 a month by going to patreon.com forward slash highway to health. Thanks for listening and for all that you do. Be good to yourself, be kind to each other, and take care of your planet. Be well, my friends. If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Nurse Wellness Podcast, hosted by Wendy Garvin Mayo, focuses on the power of stress management and how it's foundational to being your best, doing your best, and giving your best. There's a wonderful episode that you should check out called Letting Go, where Wendy Garvin Mayo shares six strategies to release control and manage stress effectively. Check out Nurse Wellness Podcast on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.